Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT. If you get an opportunity to like our page on Facebook, feel free to comment on both platforms. Lend your voice to the dialogue. For those listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you've enjoyed the last few uh, weeks of Black History Month. What we've tried to do was educate the public as much as possible on just the many accomplishments in the African-American history. One of the things that we also love to point out is the fact that African-American history, black history, if you will, is American history. And so um, we pointed out last month as we talked about Dr. King and the civil rights movement that much of what uh, these African-Americans did in the past was very strategic in terms of progressing in society. And very few um, stories in black history engulf um, history embodies progressive movement more than the Pullman Porters, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. There'll be a lot of did-you-know facts tied into this presentation because what we want you to see is how interconnected this history is and how many of these icons that we celebrate on a regular basis not only interface but learn from one another, inspired one another, and collectively move the agenda forward towards a more inclusive America, I encourage you to read as much as you possibly can on everything we discuss today. I want to start this discussion today before I introduce my guests. There's several publications that we're drawing attention to. I want to talk about The Defender. This was a, an African-American newspaper launched out of Chicago. This is um, active to this very day. If you go to uh, ChicagoDefender.com, you can still find it. The original uh, publisher was Robert S. Abbott. He launched this in 1905, and what was fascinating is Mr. Abbott was an individual who was one of the very first millionaires in the African-American community uh, back in the day. But to talk about strategy, I want to read you some of the basics of the mission of the Defender before we talk a little bit about um, how this ties into the Pullman Porters. The Bible that they called of the uh, Defender was nine points. One, uh, American race prejudice must be destroyed. Two, opening up all trade unions to blacks as well as whites. Three, representation in the president's cabinet. Four, hiring black engineers, firemen, and conductors in all, on all American railroads and to all jobs in government. And bookmark, that sounds like the mission even today in 2019. Five, gaining representation in all departments of the police forces over the entire United States. Six, government schools giving preference to American citizens before foreigners. Seven, hiring black motormen and conductors on surface, elevated, and motor bus lines throughout America. And eight, federal leg legislation to abolish lynching. And nine, full enfranchisement of all American citizens. Now, these are lofty goals, and I read all of those things to you because I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking this was just some trivial publication made to entertain people. It was much, much deeper than that. A little background as we do the Did You Know uh, journey on Robert Abbott. He went to Hampton Institute, now Hampton, Hampton, I'm sorry, University, and eventually, a famous name that uh, would write for him at the Defender for several decades was Langston Hughes. Interesting fact, when you think about uh, Hampton University, there's some notable alums. Booker T. Washington was an alum of Hampton University. Alberta Williams King, the mother of Dr. King, 
She also is an alum. And although she didn't attend there, Rosa Parks at one point in 1957 actually accepted a job at the invitation of the president at that time at the Holly Tree Inn at Hampton University. So the history of this, uh, not just this individual, but this school was very, very storied. I want to read you a passage from The Defender. And this was published right around 1910, and it was about uh, one of the Pullman Porters. It says, the name of the store was called Rich Pullman Car Clerk, Stun's Judge. This is interesting. It says, relating the case of a porter from New York who was indicted for speeding down Broadway at the rate of 30 miles per hour. At the hearing, the judge was astonished to learn that the porter was not a chauffeur, but had been driving his own car. Once again, bookmark, the automobile industry started late 1800s. So this is right around 1910. <clears throat> Very few citizens even own vehicles. This is a black man at this time. So the judge was shocked that he was driving his own car, all the more so when the porter explained that he was speeding because he was on his way to close an important real estate deal. And so the judge's mind is blown even more. It goes further and says the judge set bond at a relatively high figure, $100, which in today's figures, roughly $2,729. The porter promptly paid that $100 and went on his way. So goes the legend of the Pullman Porter at that time. This was a very, very worldly and accomplished individual, unlike anything that the African-American community, or even the white community, if you will, had ever seen. And if you look at the Defender and its kind of trajectory over time, its evolution, the Pullmans played a very, very large, uh, the Pullman Porters played a very large role in this publication rising to prominence. If you follow the circulation, uh, the circulation reached 50,000 by 1916. This is all with the help of the, por the porters, and we'll explain how. 125,000 by 1918, and more than 200,000 copies a year by the early 1920s with the help of the porters. The Pullman porters did freelance writing for the newspaper, but they also distributed these papers from city to city to city to city. And we'll get into all of this more as we introduce our guests, but I wanted you to have a firm understanding of just how rich the history is where the Pullman Porters are concerned and how it's grown tentacles over time and has really impacted the African-American community and the American landscape. To help me unpack this wonderful story, I have two guests in the studio today. I have Mr. Scott Michaels, site pastor for Grace Church. Scott, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Grace McCain. And Mr. Fred Rush, 40-plus year public servant, <laughs> renaissance man. Mr. Fred Rush, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So I want to start with just um, the basics about the Pullman Porters. But before we do that, let me back up. Scott, I want to unpack your history just a little bit. It's funny, <laughs> last month when we talked about the uh, civil rights movement, and I had a you know a couple people in the studio, I had Mark Blunt in the studio, and... I had my man Art in studio, and they, they got a kick out of the fact that I have one of my white brothers helping unpack that. But as we said, <laughs> black history is American history, right? right? Okay. It's not unusual when we unpack traditional history. And so Scott joins us in studio today. Scott, tell us a little bit about your background where um, racial diversity and things along those lines stand. Sure. 
So I, I started out practicing clinically uh, in 2000 as an athletic trainer at a, at a small liberal arts college in Kalamazoo, Michigan called Kalamazoo College. Very forward thinking, very um, unlike a, a typical college university. And I walked in my first day as a, as a newly minted employee and uh, I walked into a conversation of, so what, what is your take on apartheid and the influence of Nelson Mandela? And I said, wait, we're... We're supposed to be here talking about what's going on with your body and how I can rehabilitate you. And I realized pretty quickly that I, I was going to go through a lot of learning. Fast forward uh, 11 years, I, 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 get this, I get this inkling that I, I need to go back to school, work on my doctorate, and go into full-time teaching. Uh, I, got, I started working on my doctorate in higher ed leadership, and I came across an individual by the name of Dr. Dave Louie, who ended up being my advisor. Uh, from the Caribbean, grew up in the Bronx, fantastic rich history of living in a dichotomy of being identified as a as a black man but in his soul he was like I'm a Caribbean um, and so he uh, he was he was a tremendous mentor to me and I remember sitting um, specifically one moment on his desk sitting at his desk and he slides this piece of paper across he's like all right so I know we're working on mentoring and and we started talking about the the ideas of my interest in cross-cultural understanding and cross relations with with race and ethnicity and um, he's like I, I think you're ready to mentor so I start filling out this questionnaire and some of the questions are you know what is your idea of nationalism and this sort of thing and I, and I look I said Dr. Louis, this, these are some strange questions. He's like, no, 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 this is just a preliminary kind of thing. But I trust the man because we just have this, this, this connection that we've developed, an interpersonal comfort. And so I, I sign it and I slide it across and he's like, congratulations, you uh, just signed up for the KKK. And it was that moment for me of how, um, how trusting I was of him, but of how little I still understood and took a lot of things for granted. Mm -hmm. And so it pulled back this veil of obliviousness for me in, in, in entering a world that um, I was insulated from in a lot of ways. And so for the, for the last eight years, uh, it's been a journey of really kind of unpacking all the things that I have uh, learned that need to be unlearned mm -hmm. about uh, my role as a, as, a, as a white male heterosexual. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but I've, I've had opportunities to, to go alongside uh, Dr. Louie at, at different um, conferences where I was the minority in, in, in all respects and um, be welcomed and, and embraced in, in, in this idea and understanding of a world that for so long I was insulated from. Mm. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been life-changing. Mm. Nice. Um, Mr. Rush, for the two or three listeners or viewers that don't know you, <laughs> talk a little bit about your background. I was born in Mississippi. I uh, came to Erie when I was about three. Grew up in Erie, going to Jones School in East High and so forth, and uh, went to Penn State University, sociology, political science. Uh, did my nom trip, got drafted, mm -hmm. all right. Came back, uh, went to... Uh, Back to Gannon on the GI Bill for MPA. And I had various jobs both in government and out, worked with Xerox for a number of years in corporate America. I've worked for two mayors, for Lou Tulio for almost 15 years and Joe Sinnott for 12 years. And I worked at the courthouse under Judy Lynch and worked with Tom Ridge when he was governor down in Harrisburg and been with the Homeland Security and I 
time to come home. He's trying to raise his son. Distance wise, had a good wife, but she had to. He was growing up, you know, big time prep football player, parade all American, had 62 scholarship offers. And she said, You better come home and take care of him. His head's getting too big. So, so, and, and when mothers tell you that, you know. So we worked it out, and he, he's done well. But I grew up in a family of uh, dad went to Mississippi Valley, mom went to Tougaloo. And my mom told us early, she said, You're lucky your name is Rush. Watch, there's only four letters in it. I said, okay, so I expect more letters behind your name mm. than in your name, all right? <laughs> so the bar was set, all right? And all of our family has, has done that, so you move on. And I was really intrigued when uh, you talked about the topic today, talking about the topic, because mm -hmm. I've lived that. You know, I remember we, we were kids, my oldest sister and I, my dad would take us down to Union Station here find the porters, he'd have his Masonic pin in my lapel, and she'd have an Eastern Star pin in her lapel, and they would take us with them onto the train, get us a seat, and about 6.30, come pick us up, take us back to the dining car and feed us. And there'd be about 10 or 12 of them hanging around. and Because we were their kids. We had no idea. These guys were traveling two or three weeks at a time, not even seeing their families. Mm. But it was a good living, all right? Well, I'll tell you what. Let, 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 me, let me back up and unpack this thing, and we'll <laughs> let you go into this because as I told you earlier, I know that this topic, this is fireside chat for you because, you know, you've lived it. I want to pull from an article just to glean basic points about the Porters as we really um, address this topic today. And the article comes from the Smithsonian and it's by Aaron Blakemore. It's an interview with Spencer Crew and Spencer Crew is a Robinson professor of African-American history at George Mason University, uh, guest curator at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. This was a June 30th, 2016 article on five things you should know about Pullman Porters. And I want to just take each point and undress it as we go. The first point was the first Pullman Porters were ex-slaves. This is George Pullman, an industrialist who pioneered the world's first popular sleeper trains, was obsessed with bringing luxury and convenience to the growing railroad industry after the Civil War. He did so by building palace cars, complete with chandeliers, comfortable beds, air conditioning, and gourmet meals served by former slaves turned porters. Slaves had already done the hard work of building many of the United States railroad lines. Pullman, who was a shrewd, was as shrewd a businessman as he was a showman, felt that servant-like attendance would give riders an even keener sense of comfort and self-indulgence. So he hired former slaves, known to be cheap workers, to staff his palace cars. As historian Larry Ty writes, the saying went, Abe Lincoln freed the slaves and George Pullman hired them. So it makes reference to my favorite uh, publication on this topic, Larry Ty, Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters and the Making of the Black Middle Class um, in America. I encourage you, if you get an opportunity, pick this book up. It's a wonderful read. So let's undress that. The first Pullman Porters were ex-slaves. Give us your thoughts on that, Scott. Uh, so... It's interesting when you when you asked me to come on and, and do this. I had not heard a clue about the, the Pullman Porters, mm -hmm. and so I, I started digging and reading. And um, the thing that first struck me was this idea that you have you have slaves that have escaped the white man from the South and come to the North, and 
are in search of a better life. And um, you put them in an environment where they're, 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 they're at a point where they're, 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 they're gaining access to things, right? They're, they're trying to make a better way of life for them. And in the midst of it, right, they, they're thrown into a world where in, in the African-American community, it's considered a really good paying job. Mm. But then you throw them back into basically an oppressive kind of employment. And so um, the resolve that that was demonstrated through that, I think, struck me of we're just we're going to we're going to put our, we're going to put our head down. We're going to keep fighting. Mm. We're going to keep striving. Fred, what was the significance of them bringing on? Because as I pointed out, George Pullman was a shrewd businessman. Absolutely. What was the significance of bringing on ex-slaves to take on this very important role on his expensive uh, railways, twice the, twice the price of the average rail car at that time. Absolutely. But the other thing you have to put to everybody wasn't a slave. Mm-hmm. All black men were not slaves. Absolutely. And there were a lot of shrewd young black men, older men, who said, this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. All right. And they went and presented themselves. Because one of the things that Pullman did, he looked basically to character and commitment. Mm-hmm. And if you can't stand straight, all right, and wear that uniform proudly and so mm-hmm. forth, you're not going to get hired. So all of them weren't slaves, but they did. They gave them a, a job to do that gave them two things. It gave them decent pay and a chance to see America. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing. You, didn't, you weren't locked into that 20-mile radius that you were born into. Mm-hmm. You could be on that car and go from New York to Chicago and all those kind of things. And I think to a certain extent, it also gave them a sense of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an infantry unit or a fraternity or a lodge. You have a brotherhood there. We can say things to each other and keep it secret. You can work with each other toward a common goal, all right? And that, that's what this really provided. And as it grew and grew, and they realized between, in numbers, their strength, and they asked for representation. That's where <clears throat> the rest of this comes in with uh, A. Philip Randolph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This takes us to our, our second point that Scott alluded to. The second point is that they were forced to answer to the name George. And if you read segments of this article that pointed out just because slavery ended didn't mean the job of Pullman Porter was dignified. Mm-hmm. Porters were often addressed by the name George, a name that was based in the social standards of slavery itself. Yeah. As the writer points out, at some point, Porters began to be addressed by their employer's first name just as a slave would be addressed by his master's name before emancipation. Now. To pull out of this for just a second, to go to your point, Fred, a lot of these gentlemen still saw this. This George, makes me admire. George was George Pullman's e- name. Exactly, <laughs> as an opportunity. But I, I go on. The humiliation was heightened by the seemingly endless job description porters were expected to fulfill. Yeah. As the Museum of the American Railroad notes, Pullman porters were essentially at the beck and call of first class passengers, but expected to be otherwise invisible. They did everything from shining shoes to carrying bags to making beds. And in some cases, they were even forced to sing and dance by condescending customers. And so you talk about a bridge position. Mm -hmm. You know, again, going back to your point. Okay, so there's some humiliation that I'm going to have to deal with. I'm going to have to bite my tongue. But, and you can finish that for me, Fred. But I have a family to take care of. That's right. I have survival to do. I have a role model set. And when I do get free... I can go visit my church, hmm. all right, 
in my community or other communities, they developed, a, as they say, underground railroad, an overground railroad, okay. Okay. <laughs> the context that they had. They didn't go from community to community. I remember my dad saying when the Pullmans came here and they'd stop in Erie, they went to the Gresham Hotel here in Erie. The Gresham Hotel was the black motel. Mm -hmm. They couldn't go to the Lawrence or the Richford or any place else. But Mr. Gresham had a hotel right up there on 14th and, and Peach Street. And we'd go up there sometime, I'm this big, but you know, and listen to them tell stories of where they've been and places like California and all that kind of stuff. But that was a, almost, that's, I think that led to them forming what they finally did. They had the fraternal, they had the common mutuality of interest, and they worked toward a common goal. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the title, well, the subtitle here mm -hmm. is the making of the black middle class. And you know, when I speak to students and when teachers or when people like yourself speak to future generations, one of the things I always try to impress upon them is, you know, whatever um, niceties, whatever luxuries you enjoy were paid for. It was a price paid. And so, Scott, as you're reading about these porters and you look at the fact that they really laid the foundation for the black middle class yeah. and the things that they endured, what thoughts ran through your mind as you started unpacking this part? Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing question. Um, you know, I, so I, I go back to this idea of the railroad was built by whom, right? We were talking about this before the show. We were immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, Chinese, Chinese and right? Blacks. And blacks. And, and it, it's very interesting to see then that the very railways that, that, they, that they were used to build, right, provided them the access to see the, war, to see the countryside, mm -hmm. to, to, to get into close contact with the, the white elites and to learn from them and to glean from them, right? We talked about information that they, that they were hearing that they would then bring back to the middle class community because it's all about it, information and knowledge is, is cumulative. exactly, it's cumulative. And when you get that, that knowledge, you get that information, and now all of a sudden you have a little bit understanding of how to, and how to utilize capital that you're gaining, well, now all of a sudden you, you, can, you can make a way for yourself. You can, you can build an investment, and you can instill that, in that into the next generation. And so that was the thing that was fascinating for me, is that they, they were the workhorse to build the railway, and then they, they, they were... the the, the African-American community used the railway system mm. to, to develop the middle class of black America. I See, mean, I, that was, I yeah. love that because at least there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, There's right. an opportunity here that we can change things by taking advantage of this, which brings me to point number three from that article from the Smithsonian. And you both alluded to this. Pullman porters occupied a special place within the African-American community. Pullman porters were well-traveled, rubbed rub shoulders with America's elite, they were what crews, what crew called a conduit into what the larger society might mm -hmm. be thinking and doing. That's significant. Yeah. Crew compares the, I love this, crew compares the information that Pullman porters of the early 20th century circulated from their travels to doing what social media allows for today. today. Because they visited so many places, they were able to bring back recommendations, experiences, and information to the African-American community. Pullman porters would bring African-American newspapers like the Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, and I'll let you unpack that a little bit, back to their communities. These newspapers, he said, gave Southerners information on how and where they could escape the segregation and violence they experienced at home. And so there was status in the community attached to being a porter. 
Absolutely. At the time, you had people. I remember Johnson Publications with Ebony and Jet and mm -hmm. all those kind of things. And uh, just traveling. We used to travel a lot by car. And you'd go down and you see these. Because in a lot of places in the South, they didn't sell Ebony and Jet. Because we were stopped at a gas station, the guy came out and get the gas, and I was sitting in the back reading the Ebony. And he, Dad paid, and he started pulling off. I said, he got my book. And he turned to his wife who was sitting on the porch. They got black folks living like white folks in this book. And that just, you know, I'm saying, Dad, I want a book. He said, shut up. <laughs> and we, we kept going. I think Dad enjoyed leaving the book with him so he could see it. Nat King Cole and those folks doing something. But... I think that travel, that camaraderie is what built it. Then they had to go to another modality, and you, you're going to get to mm -hmm. that next as they start organizing. Mm -hmm. All right, the oh, yeah. strength oh, yeah. of organization, <laughs> not individuals, but the strength mm -hmm. of organizations mm -hmm. make the difference. Yeah, once we get to that fifth point, we'll, we'll go ahead and start unpacking that mm -hmm. whole thing with A. Philip Randolph and everything else. Scott, you already alluded to this point, but here we are. They're playing this large role in society. Talk about this a little bit. I think it was, uh, the fascinating thing for me was how they, they used the information that they were learning, they bring, would bring it back verbally, right, because there's power in, 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 in that and sharing it with the community. And there was also the, this, this underground system of, we're gonna, we have these newspapers and listening to some of the stories outside of the book that listen to some of the stories of the actual Pullmans that were accessible online. And they're like, we had designated spots where we would take the newspapers and, and drop them. And then there were individuals that knew that those newspapers were going to be dropped so that then they could bring it back to their community and share that. And so it was a fantastic system and network of sharing information and knowledge. It was the Chitlin Circuit before the Chitlin Circuit was the Chitlin Circuit. I mean, it, distribution is everything when you're talking about yes. print media. Yeah. And so here you have the best organic distribution network ever. They talked about celebrities, a couple celebrities that a few that they pointed out, Mae West. He was a person that he pointed out seen on the train, Joan Crawford. John D. Rockefeller has a famous story about how he would, A, not look the porters in the eye, one of the porters was saying. And then also, he would, as he was walking away, flick a dime over his shoulder to the ground to tip, at which point his wife would turn around, reach in her purse, give the porter a dollar. Hmm. Now, fast forward, one of the favorite guests in terms of celebrity was Jackie Gleason. Says A, Jackie Gleason always wanted a piano on board when he was there. B, he tipped every porter $100. And they laughed and sang, and they said that they, they just eagerly anticipated every time they knew Mr. Gleason was getting on board. But it goes back to that worldliness yeah. of them holding court in barbershops yes. and things along those lines. You know, because at that time, I'm afraid you can speak to this, at that time, um, the worldview they amassed was very rare. It was very rare. And in a lot of cases, you know, we were still at that time with all black schools and all black things like that. We didn't see the world in that perspective. These people came in and said, there's a bigger world out there. Hmm. There are HBCUs out there, mm -hmm. historical black colleges out there. Mm -hmm. If you want a life, you can have one. What does it take? Let me help you. And one thing I always know about people who are successful, they always reach back because the next generation is depending on you. We are all standing on someone else's shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, we're standing on their shoulders because mm -hmm. they did the work of exploring and reaching back and communicating and basically making sure that we had an idea that our world wasn't limited yeah. 
-hmm. by our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So and that, that's critical. Mm -hmm. So Scott, speak to that a little bit. We're looking at the building of, of the middle class, and this is something that people don't think about often. You know, when you think about these days, um, I don't think you necessarily have a view of, you know, this middle class educated folks. You know, it goes back to that story in The Defender yeah. <laughs> about this this porter paying $100 out of his pocket, yeah. going to a real estate deal. Chime in on that a little bit. It's interesting you, you, you talked about education and, and how you pull back and, and, and you push forward. And, and you, so in, in going through the, the higher ed leadership um, and all the different classes of of HBCUs, I got to I had the opportunity to go down and walk Morehouse's campus. Morehouse. And Benjamin Mason. Yeah, yeah. I just and 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 to be in so one of the conferences I got this I got to be a part of was the American Association of Blacks in Higher Education. I was one of two white guys out of hundreds of higher ed faculty and staff. It was it was an awesome it was an awesome three days. But I I could go down that path and just all the things that I learned and all that kind of stuff. But the amazing thing about this is if you take a look at the access of higher education, right? The first, the first university that was established was Harvard in 1636, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you, you, you were only going to Harvard if you were going to be a doctor, or if you were going to be a civic leader, or you were going to be some sort of lawyer or, or a preacher, or a preacher yes. right? And right. so talk about elitism at its finest. So that was only for whites, right? 200 years later, Cheney, Right, Cheney University of Pennsylvania is the first HBCU that is that is granted at least the opportunity to be a, considered a university. Another hundred years goes by almost to where that university is actually allowed to grant degrees. And so you think about access, and you think about how many generations of of the white community has gone on and pulled back and established and moved forward with things. 200 years. How many generations is that if a generation is about 20 years? I mean, mm -hmm. think about it. That's 10 gen. I mean, that's insane. And mm -hmm. so you think about what this rising of the black community did, and the porters speak about the idea of we are going to impress upon our, we're doing this for our kids, so our kids know the importance of you are going to college, you are going to get a degree, you are going to further yourself, right? Because they understood, they saw the result of what education and access to that can do to someone. And so that I, I lit up when I read that. I could I could just sit in there for a while. And to bring this conversation full circle, I know last week a walk in black history aired on WQLN and afterwards I interviewed Gary Horton, who was an alum of Cheney. Cheney. Yeah. Yeah. So excellent point, Scott. We'll go to the fourth point, and that is the fact that the job was demanding and demeaning. So we've actually unpacked the fact that it was demeaning, but the demanding part, I do want to draw attention to the second paragraph. It says they were required to work 400 hours a month and often had to work 20 hour shifts with only three or four hours of sleep in between. They had to pay for their own food, do unpaid prep work and supply their own uniforms. And they did it all in railroad cars in which they themselves would not have been allowed to travel in mm. during Jim Crow segregation. Isn't that something? They themselves were not allowed to travel in. So when you listen to the descendants of, of these Pullman porters, and for the record, when you talk about the rich history, North Pole pioneer Matthew Henson was a Pullman porter. Mm -hmm. You look at some of the famous descendants of Pullman porter, Olympic gold medalist Wilma Rudolph, Thurgood Marshall is a, is a mm -hmm. descendant of Pullman porters. NAACP's chair Roy Wilkins 
descendant of Pullman Porters. The fly jock, one of my media heroes, Tom Joyner, <laughs> descendant of Pullman Porters. The Neville Brothers, if you like music, and Malcolm X. Hmm. But one of the things that they didn't address to a lot of their children and grandchildren was things like this, just how hard they got worked, right? Because the prestige and everything else that came along with it, many of their kids were spared from the uglier side of, right? We Fred, did, talk we about that, the price we that, that was for paid. our kids too. Right. In a lot of cases, we have we don't share with them the the hard work that it takes to get to where you are. They think you were born there. Mm. No, no, I was born right same place you were. We started, but I think we as adults have to reach back and pull the next generation up. First of all, with knowledge. Second of all, with the hard work. And third of all, with honesty. Mm. Really, just look them right in the eye and say, you know what? And you have to push them to a new level mm-hmm. and demand because. They're capable. I think one of the biggest things that we have is a lot of our young people don't see the visibility, particularly in this community. Hmm. One of my sayings when I talk about Erie, Erie is like living at the bottom of a well. When you look up, all you can see is that little part of the sky that you can see from the well, okay? Hmm. And I remember one time when I was growing up, I, my responsibility when I turned 13 was to go and pay the mortgage at First National Bank. That was so long ago, it was $63. Dad give me three twenties and three ones. I'd go down, pay it. She'd give me a receipt. And I'm standing there saying, maybe I'll be a banker one day. Hmm. To this day, I've never seen a black male banker hmm. in this community. Hmm. Okay, and that was 50, 60 years ago. Hmm. And it's hard to become what you cannot conceive. Hmm. The thing about the porters, they brought back with them what they had seen to help people conceive that you can do better. You can go to college, you can own a car, you can own a house, you can marry and be happy. In a lot of of cases, you know, we we have split that dynamic of the family. And the family and the old attitude it takes a village to raise a child, that's the same adage we had. And we were village oriented. That's what, what we are as people. And we have to go back to that and say, this dimension, it's not new, but it has to be revised. We have to go back and keep watering that seed instead of saying, I made mine, you go get yours. All right? And it's it's happening. These guys did it because they had a commitment, and they worked together. They had fraternal bonds and all those kind of things that really pulled it together. Religious bonds. Most of uh, the guys like A. Philip Randolph and all those they were children of AME ministers, hmm. okay? So the AME church, Richard Allen, and all that played into all of these. Hmm. And one thing these guys should do when they get to a community, they'd go and try to find a phone book and find an AME church and go there when he had a break. So some of our institutions that fostered our success are still alive and well. They need to be nurtured. We need to take our children there. This program you're doing now and talking about Black History Year, every day of the year, okay? Because they're not getting any other way. And it hurts if you really don't know your own history. Scott, we're looking at this 400 hours a month, these 20-hour shifts, three or four hours of sleep in between. And so, yes, it is a prestigious position. Yes, it gives a worldly perspective that the community hadn't had Mm -hmm. prior to the Porters, but this is some of the price paid. Right. Let's keep following this pathway that that, uh, that Mr. Rush laid down here about 
the price paid and sometimes young people not fully understanding. You worked with our young people here in academia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. It's really interesting you bring up this idea of the importance of history yes. and sharing and sharing that. And because I, if you think about it, right, every, every generation builds. Exactly. Right. And some, and, and unless, and unless the history is brought with it, it's, it's literally lost on them and the importance of perseverance and hard work or whatever. So when I look at this 400 hours a month, right. And 20 hour shifts and you read about the, it's so important for our young people to understand the struggles and also, yes, the perseverances and successes, but you have to understand the struggles. You have to understand the story within the struggle. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think there's so much to glean from that. And you, like, if you look, if you, some of the other stuff that I, I mean, Pullman had that manual, right? That was so detailed right. and so ridiculous. Like how to swat, like this is the proper way to swat a fly. <laughs> right. Come on, Mike, it's a fly. I just want the thing dead. But but to know that they were, there was so much detail and so much structure that, that, they, that they were mandated to follow. And if not, they, they were basically said, you're, you're gone. We're going to fill this spot with someone else. And you, you only have to sleep with a different color blanket because it's going to ensure that everybody that is not looking like you is going to know that. 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 Right? And so it would, that, story's, that story needs to be told, right? Because... It, it messes with the reality, especially from someone that looks like me, right, and hasn't had to deal with a lot of this thumb oppressive kind of feel, and understanding, well, wait, why was that there? And to and go into those spaces and ask those harder questions. Mm-hmm. I know a second ago I slipped up and called uh, called your uncle Fred. It, full disclosure, <laughs> you know, outside of the studio, I lovingly refer to Mr. Rush as Uncle Fred because you know when you talk to him, you learn so many different things, and I know that discipline is something you are very, very big on. Mm -hmm. And I've pointed out on many occasions with young people, whether it's Jackie Robinson Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. Porters, were it not for their discipline, you wouldn't have the privileges that you have today. And and, and so many kids kick and scream, or people kick and scream against discipline. This is all discipline we're talking about. No question about it. And the appreciation of that simple fact has waned a bit. Chime in on that. Discipline and structure. My dad was a World War II vet, and he said after World War II, he got on his ships, and we basically sailed to New York, got on trains in New York, and we're going down. He said, I was on a car with about 60 people. Eight of them were German prisoners. They brought them to America to interrogate them. And he said, we got to Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. and then the, the conductor came through and told all the black soldiers to move to the black car because we're going into Kentucky, you go across the bridge. And he says, so I hadn't thought, I got up, got my stuff, I started moving, the German soldiers said, Schwatzer, Schwatzer. So that's when the Germans speak, what's that mean? He says, niggas, niggas. And I said, now I didn't spend three years fighting these folks, I gotta go, that's the discipline. He said, nope, came home, got mom, so we went back, all right? But that is so deeply inbreded around the world by us that it's hard for people of color to go any place without doing that. And we've conditioned it in our children. I was talking to a person the other day about music. You know, I said, if you look at the new music, the rap music, the words they're using, the slang and all that kind of stuff, you know, the N-word, you will never see a piece of music in America 
that uses the white word, hunky, cracker. No, they don't say that. Producers won't do it. Mm-hmm. But they let us call each other that. Mm-hmm. And our kids ingest that. Mm-hmm. All right? We have to tell No, reject that. Mm-hmm. Reject that. And it's stories like this mm-hmm. that we need to continually reinforce to help not just the youth, but the greater community understand, again, the price paid. Let's go to the fifth point and start bringing this thing home. Pullman Porters unionize. Now this thing gets interesting. I want to read this. It says the the union they formed, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, faced staunch opposition from the Pullman Company. Bookmark, one of those individuals was the son of President Lincoln, Robert Todd Lincoln. I digress. We'll go into that in just a minute. (laughs) Black community members who thought of the Porter job as a respectable one also fought back, and the company attempted to sway the African-American community to bust the union. It took more than a decade for the union to sign a labor agreement with Pullman, but when it did, the union won both recognition and better conditions. It was the first African-American labor union to succeed in brokering a collective bargaining agreement with a major corporation, a win that helped lay the foundation for the future, for the future civil rights era. Again, end game, understanding a goal, realizing and actualizing goals. Through those, though those social gains had a cost, Crew sees the Pullman Porters as a part of a larger context of African-American mobility and community. And so let me go to that. Before you start unpacking that, Edie Nixon, very famous Pullman Porter, Edgar Daniel Nixon, was the individual who bailed Rosa Parks after the sit-in. He was the individual who paid for her attorney. At one point, Mr. Nixon was the president of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, 1945, 47. He became the state president of the NAACP when they started to really organize in terms of putting money into the movement, yeah. the Porters were rock stars because yeah. very few people had the financial We, we didn't have the NFL, NBA. <laughs> <laughs> very few of them had the financial means. And so that. now we're starting to organize. Okay, so Scott, start with that. So here we are. We're putting some structure to this yep. and the rubber meets the road. Yeah, so I think that's, so that's the neatest part. For me, this is one of the neatest parts about the story because of you take a look at all the things that were, that were being learned, that were there gaining knowledge about, right? You, they talk, we talked about, uh, about 20 minutes ago about the idea of how to invest money, right? They learned all of these things and then they utilized that of understanding how to unionize. And once that unionization happened, they started to invest their money to make themselves stronger so that they could do more things, so that they gain more activism. And it's really interesting to read as you go along in this whole process from the start of this, you know, of the Sleeping Car Porters Brotherhood, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, to where they bankrolled a lot of the money that they learned how to invest in, and they bankrolled that over into the civil rights movement and being able to continue to do the things they did on a national level. Fascinating to understand how, if it wasn't really for the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car, does that civil rights movement gain the traction that it does? Interesting question. I'm going to unpack just a basic about A. Philip Randolph, and then I'm going to let you finish unpacking it. So enter A. Philip Randolph, who was the pit bull of his day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. where this type of issue was concerned. A. Philip Randolph started a magazine called The Messenger. It was a publication in 1917. That publication was so informative to the African-American community that in 1919, the Justice Department 
the Justice Department declared the messenger the most able and dangerous of all Negro publications. You sound like, uh, what's his name? J. Edgar Hoover, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so A. Philip Randolph was revered and respected in the African-American community. He was feared in the white community at that time because of his intellect and his ability to articulate that and empower yeah. others. Talk about that a little bit, Mr. Rush. A. Philip Randolph basically was the son of an AME preacher mm -hmm. and a educa college-educated mother. And they moved to Jacksonville, Florida, where he went to the high school, East yep. High School. East Ives Jackson, the only accredited high school in the whole state about for black folks. So I want right? to add something real quick because you helped piece together a piece of the puzzle for us. Educated mom, yep. AME minister. So here's a man who, A, educated, B, understands how to articulate his point. Absolutely. From rearing. Go ahead with your All story. Right. And he went from there basically to college, NYU. He went to what they used to call then Cookman. Now it's Bethune-Cookman yeah. College, all right? Yeah. And, and he basically started working in the movement for political activities, starting thinking something's wrong here. So he looked at all these different other philosophies, mm -hmm. whether it's Marxism and communism mm -hmm. and the whole bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1925, he did organize a Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and met the opposition you just talked about. But through that organization, he gained access. Yeah. That was the important thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They recognized the organization. They had recognized his leadership skills. Mm -hmm. He had planned, he and a guy named Bernard Ruskin, to have a march on Washington in 1941. Yeah, 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 yeah. And to say to people, this isn't fair. We have people working in our governmental jobs side by side who are paid different pays hmm. just because they're black. Different pays, mm -hmm. same job. And they threatened to have the march on Washington. Eleanor Roosevelt convinced her husband, Franklin, mm -hmm. not to do that. And what they did, basically, Franklin issued an executive order, 9981. Mm -hmm. They used to call it the triple nines. Okay. <laughs> in 1940, ending discrimination in federal government uh, contracting. And he went on. He was a mentor for... A guy named Martin Luther King. That's right. All right. That's right. Uh, Who E.D. Nixon brought into the fight. Yes. At the, at the uh, great speech, March on Washington, August 1963. I'll tell you that sometime in private. But uh, <laughs> I went to that. But uh, he and A. Philip Randolph and Baird Ruskin were really the organizers of that march. Mm -hmm. And because of that, when they started the union, the AFL nor the CIO wanted them in. Mm. Those two unions were not allowing black folks. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. And he kept working, and they finally accepted him at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. The other thing that he did basically kept pressing until 1948. Mm -hmm. President Truman integrated the armed forces because these guys fought from the Revolutionary War through every war of American history, all right, segregated units, with the exception of the Navy, the early Navy. 20% of the people who fought with Perry in the Battle of Lake Erie on September 10th, 1813, were freed black men who That's came right. in from Massachusetts. That's right. So I want to bring this full <laughs> circle here. Another interesting fact. He started that magazine, again, that publication in Absolutely. 1917, much, much because of the help of his wife, Lucille Campbell Green Randolph, who, who herself was a graduate of Howard University, Smart. also had a degree in um, from... 
Layla Beauty College, which was founded because she owned upscale, uh, upscale beauty salon in New York. So she had a degree from Howard University as a teacher and then graduated from Layla Beauty College. And Layla Beauty College was founded in 1913 by Madam C.J. Walker. Absolutely. Right? The African-American woman that many view as the first millionaire, which was. is debatable, but still, she's <laughs> one of the first. She was Oprah before Oprah was Oprah. Once again, learning from, so you've got all of this connectedness, but I go back to the opposition. And so George Pullman dies in 1897. Mm -hmm. His general counsel, his legal general counsel was Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of President Abraham Lincoln. In 1911, Lincoln becomes chairman of the Pullman Company Board. So Lincoln takes over in 1897 after Pullman dies. He, became, he becomes a millionaire from this, but the thing I really want to point out is from the account of all the Pullmans that had to deal with Lincoln, he was a hard man to work for. He was not his father. Scott, talk about that a little bit. Still, we were we were actually talking about this before the yeah. show and how it's it's hard living in. I believe you said it, Fred. What did you say? Hard living in somebody else's shadow. shadow. And so I, that um, I think it's it's a fascinating concept of the undertone of power and fear that, and especially fear when you start to see your power starting to be challenged, and the extent at which you will go to, to hold on to that power. Mm. And I think that I, that's that that's the thing that wasn't said, but you know, was the driving force to a lot of things. And it's still even today when you take a look, right? Anytime power is challenged, there's fear, and and it goes from uh, overt ways, right? What we what was experienced during the civil rights movement and a lot of that pushback and physical violence to now much more covert ways, right? Whether it's through law or legislation or policy and procedure and the and the it goes to all, layer, all layers, and so I, it's, it's a microcosm of, of still what we're dealing with today on some, on some level, or in a lot of different levels, right? And the idea of power and fear. And the, the idea of power and fear goes back to voting. Yes. We keep trying to do voter intimidation, yep. registration, and the whole yep. doggone bit because we are afraid yes. that, you know, given power, they will use it. Oh. All right. Yep. I want to go back to some of the principles of the defender, and Scott, I want you to chime in on this a couple things that were listed as core principles again hiring black engineers firemen conductors all rails but especially the engineers and firemen and to all jobs in government gaining representation in all departments of the police force mm -hmm. if you look at the newspaper articles from 2018 what are you hiring more black officers oh we need more black firemen Oh, we need more black politicians. In your opinion, how are we still having this conversation? <laughs> it's, it, it still goes back to power and fear. Yep. Like what? Those who hold power are a select few, right? And, and the thing is, it's like, I, like every time, I, I don't want to generalize. I come into a lot of conversations when it comes to Inter, interconnectedness, whether it's race, ethnicity, power dynamics and everything, and understanding the layers of insulation that I can just walk right back into. After, like even after this conversation, right? I have the ability, because I'm male, because I'm heterosexual, because I'm able-bodied, because I'm white, I, those are just layers of insulation. I can learn all this stuff, and then I can just retreat back into my insulated world and be like, this world was made for me. 
And so what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a system that is broken. And I'm insulated from it because of all those things that I mentioned and more so. And I think what we're experiencing, and to answer that question, is that our system's broken and we need to, we really need to put the pause on and yeah. pull back the curtain and be like, here's why it's broken. Right. And you can work from that to here's how it's broken and this is how we fix it. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Because I think when you look at things and you say, we're going to make a change to this, there's a reaction to that. Yes. Like, I'm getting cheated. Yes. If we talk about voter registration, affirmative actions, uh, we've talked about uh, business set-asides, community mm -hmm. benefit agreements, mm -hmm. all that kind of, well, we're getting cheated. All right. No, you're not getting cheated. We're bringing in a whole group of people who are going to help you make more money. Yeah. Because that's the whole purpose. They want to make more money, mm -hmm. help you make more money. Mm -hmm. The thing is, fear of control, yes. loss of control. Yeah. All right. And I always tell people, want the same things. All right. Our society is found on four basic principles economics first. Got to have money to live, so forth and so forth. Which is what slavery came down to economics. Economics. Right. Politics. There's a lot of cases economics controls politics, but they're afraid. Let's stop people from voting. Basically, love is the core factor. Mm. That's the next one. Everybody loves their kids, their parents, the whole bit. Universal. All right? And the fourth concept is indifference. We have a whole society that doesn't bother to know us, that we don't know them. Amen. And that's your, what you were basically that's saying. Yep. We have a whole preconceived idea how they are, yes. what they want. And if given the opportunity, all right, they will take something from me. I'm watching the president now tell me mm. these hordes coming in from the border. It's our great. No, you got a guy named Putin who you were hugging. <laughs> 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 all right. So like I said, I'm old. <laughs> but, but that brings, so, but language, right? The power of language. Yep. And, and they. What does they mean? Well, yes. that, well, if there's a they, then there's an us. But mm. us is always right. Right, right. Mm. Excellent point. So, gentlemen, let's bring this back full circle. The takeaways. And so on the, the point, I went back to readdress some of the core principles of the defender just to accentuate once again, because once you start unpacking African-American history, that segment of American history, mm -hmm. you always find yourselves dealing with the exact same issues in many, many ways that we're dealing with today. And I go there whenever people say, well, you know, things are completely different. Things have changed, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but there are certain fights that unfortunately we're still fighting decades later. So Scott, we'll start with you. Key takeaways from this whole, and there's a lot to sink your yeah. teeth into. Yeah. The viewer, the listener, let me encourage you. Do your homework on this. We are just scratching the surface mm -hmm. on the rich history of the Pullman Porters. But Scott, your takeaways from this story. Uh, so there's power in a story, right? I, I think, I think understand, understanding has to first start with proximity. You have to get proximal not only to the literature that's there, but to the individuals that you don't necessarily know the story behind, right? So like even, like even, even this conversation this morning, I have gotten proximal to two individuals whose heartbeat and passion, right, you can feel. And the stories that have, that have been shared this morning, I take away. Now, as, as a white man, I, there, I, I have to understand that I play a role in this because I have, I, have two, I have two choices. I can sink back into my layers of insulation 
right? Which is not going to do much of any good outside, outside of just precipitate the things that have continued and perpetuate the things that have continued to go on or get proximal to it and understand my role in the idea of love and indifference and understanding that because of those, because of those two, it's now time for me to own yep. and to move forward with it mm-hmm. so that I can instill that in my children. Like the idea of history is the thing that I probably take away the most with of, I did not know this and I need to share this with my two girls and, and give them the picture of it's very important to understand the history of our country. I'll mm-hmm. help you. I, you come over the house, we will offer a help from Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred, your takeaways. All right, just, just, I want to just say this. This is the 400th year yeah. after uh, the white swan landed in Virginia with 19 black slaves, okay? And from 1619 to 1719, 1719, 1819, 18, 19, and 1919 to 2019, there have been heroes, mm. black, male, female, mm-hmm. all right, white, male, female, mm-hmm. that have done something to change the system. We don't recognize our heroes yeah. and respect them enough because the real history isn't being taught. Mm. I remember one day I was in fifth grade, Jones School, we're looking at the Declaration of Independence. And one of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence was a guy named Benjamin Rush. I said, wow, one of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence. My teacher said, no, all your people were slaves. (laughs) Now, at 10 years old, you know what to do with that. But you know what? I knew not to go back and tell my father that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I did was go to World Book Encyclopedia. Now, we had the World Book. And look up Benjamin Rush, famous physician out of Philadelphia in the Hobbit. And I started my research, hmm. learning about our heroes from Battle Lake Erie all the way through the Alex Thompsons, the Ernie Denny's, the Ben Wileys in this community, mm-hmm. okay? In cases, the Lou Tulios and those folks too. These were people who pushed the envelope. Hmm. So the takeaway is to learn about our heroes. Learn about your heroes. We don't and, elevate and, that enough. And heroes and sheroes. And sheroes. <laughs> yes. Understood. Good. Well, gentlemen, great discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Scott Michael, Fred Rush. It was a great discussion. Thank you for lending your, uh, your opinions, your perspectives to the benefit of the viewers, to the benefit of the listeners, and to us as a studio. Thank you all for tuning in to Next on WQLM. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. For radio, tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. We'll see you next time.